at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Friday, November 10th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm here to help you become a better investor. Now, first off, I want to thank everyone who showed up yesterday to our wealth webinar. And we covered a lot uh, over about an hour and 15 minutes. We went way over. Uh, I think next time uh, our goal is to probably shorten it up a bit and answer a few more questions. Um, but uh, I think we gave a good distillation of where we are today, where we're likely headed, where that recession is likely to hit. So probably sometime middle part of next year. And then what sectors were or are typically – Good going into a recession, during a recession, and coming out of a recession. Okay, but that was yesterday, and you you'll be able to watch that webinar coming up here on our YouTube channel probably in the next week or so. So be on the lookout for that if you did miss it. But today we have a job. We have a job to do, and that is take help you take that next step in your investment journey, which is different for everybody. Everyone starts at a different place, and everyone is looking to end in a different spot as well. But the commonalities are going to be financial freedom. That means something different for everybody, but those principles do remain the same. So I'm here to answer your questions and give you my unbiased perspective and data that we obviously use every day in managing portfolios and analyzing the economy. All right. Let's take a look at the – well, we're going to take a look at the market performance today. We're going to run down some show topics. But as usual, we're going to hit our first caller question now. Hi, Justin and Steve. Long-time caller here, listener from the Midwest. I have a uh, question for you. I'm looking at a fund, SDOG. I would love to know what your thoughts are on the fund. I believe it's a growth dividend fund contains good holdings from what I can tell and like to know what you think. Thank you so much for listening to all this. I really appreciate your help. Look forward to hearing it in the podcast. All right. Looking at SDOG, which is the Alps Sector Dividend Dogs ETF. Let's see. I don't I have to look at really the criteria for this. Just looking it up here. Uh, equal weight exposure to the five highest yielding stocks in 10 sectors across 500 of the largest companies. So looking at the S&P and then taking the 10 highest dividend paying stocks in those 10 sectors. Okay, so... They call it cyclical value exposure with a dividend focus. Now, here's my issue with it, is that it's only focused on dividends. 
Yes, you're spreading it out amongst 10 different sectors. There's no real estate in here, but it's basically utilities, healthcare, consumer defensive, technology, industrial, energy, communication services, financial services, and consumer cyclical. There's about 5% in basic materials. I guess they throw that one in there as well. But the main issue I have with this, like I said, is that it is simply focused on the yield. And sometimes that can be good, and sometimes that can be very bad, especially in times like now where there is a lot. Uh, there are a lot of companies that are paying high dividends, but the dividends are in peril because they have a lot of debt in their balance sheet. That is either because they have poor businesses or because the balance sheet was just mismanaged. They paid out dividends, too high dividends for too long, or maybe they leveraged up their balance sheet to buy back shares. Whatever it was that got them into that place, there are many companies like that that are sitting with high dividend yields that are at a high risk of being cut. <clears throat> and so this is not a name that I would be buying because you're walking into too many value traps in my mind. And Morningstar kind of agrees with this. They have a two out of five star rating for this, two out of five, and a negative view on it. Expense ratio is 0.36%. That's not crazy high. That's probably okay for more, a more actively managed fund, but I don't love the process here because there's no filter for earnings quality, business quality, balance sheet quality, et cetera. It's just being myopic and looking at dividend yield. And that's going to run you into way too many problems in this particular market. And you can just look at its top holdings and see the vast majority of them are in a downtrend, right? AT&T is in a downtrend. Obviously, uh, you have uh, Verizon in a downtrend. That's another one that is is in a down is uh, in the top holdings. Um, Citigroup is in there. Kraft Heinz, Southern Company. Um, so some of these are okay, but you're kind of mixing too many troubled companies with some that are okay. So I rather uh, do a little work and find the ones with better balance sheets. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, we have a lot of cover over the next 40 minutes. Our main focus point looks into the story behind this question. What are the pros and cons of donor-advised funds? <clears throat> and donor-advised fund is a vehicle that allows investors to donate directly to a charitable fund while retaining control over the investments. So for this topic, I'm going to touch on charitable tax deductions with regards to donor advised funds and touch on tax-free growth as well as investment flexibility within these funds. All right. That's our main focus point, but I also want to touch on a few others. One is in regards to manufacturing. <clears throat> the goal, I think, for both sides of the aisle and for most people in the country is to revive American manufacturing. Maybe not the levels like we saw in the early 90s or gave me a goal back to the, the 70s, but this is a goal for everybody. But the problem is they our workers have become less efficient. Manufacturing here is becoming less competitive. And so while there's hopes and dreams of moving manufacturing back, co companies aren't going to do it unless 
it becomes more efficient. Our workers become more efficient. So we're going to look at that. Also, yesterday, big news out of the treasury market. This is something I talked about. We're in the first or second inning of our government debt levels becoming too large. Too large for the balance sheet room around the world. Meaning individuals, funds, foreign investors, etc., banks. There's just not enough room for the massive amount of issuance. And yesterday was a 30-year treasury bond auction. And it was one of the worst in years when it comes to its measurements. So we're going to touch on that. And then lastly, private credit. It's been booming, but there are increasing concerns. So we're going to look at a new analysis of a market that had boomed and is starting to crack. We also have some voice bank questions. One is on Freeport Mac brand and the other is on Gilead Sciences. And we'll try to fit in an iTunes review question as well. Now let's get to our market performance for today. We closed out the week strong. There's no other way to look at it. It was strong across the board, large cap, small cap, value, Growth, the, let's see, the best return today, technology up 2.5%. So that got a nice boost. What what else did well? Uh, communication services, industrials were up 1.38% in line with those industrials. Consumer cycles up 1.58. So a lot of positivity around the market to close the week, despite that bad auction last week. <clears throat> and like I said, you had that. Powerful move off the Fed meeting, and you've had some consolidation, and today we had some follow-through. So not surprised as we inch closer to the holiday season. All right, and as we go to a break, please remind you, I remind you to check out the newest Invest.Classroom Classroom series, episode 12, Investment Strategies for Short-Selling Stocks. So you can learn more about that over on Invest.Classroom Classroom on YouTube, just Search Invest Talk on YouTube. Now, phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888 chart When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 Chart. This is Invest Talk. For serious investors, it's all about achieving financial freedom. 
That's why the unbiased guidance offered by Steve and Justin is so valuable. The Invest Talk Anytime listener lines are open now, and Steve and Justin welcome your questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin, it's Art from Tucson calling in about Freeport McMoran, FCX is the ticker. Wondering if this is a good buying point here or a good point to um, begin to cost average in. I'll listen on the podcast for your answer. Thank you. The simple answer is yes. This is near the lows we saw in May. And overall copper prices have held up. So I, I think this is a good opportunity for Freeport McMoran. Now, it's not my favorite copper name out there. I know it's the largest and, and most well-known, but there are better, more well-run copper miners. So if you're looking to get into copper, this is a f- okay choice, but... It's not the best out there, but timing-wise, uh, now between now and the end of the year, I think this will be a good time to kind of dollar cost average in until next year. All right, now people that take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for their courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Beirut Don says, "DSKE, Daseki, Dasek, Dasek." D-A-S-E-K-E is how you spell the name of the company. They're out of Texas, and they provide open-deck specialized transportation services here in North America. And Beirut Don says, just keeps going lower, but turning, question mark. You guys have covered it a couple times the past two years, small cap. They may flat they make flatbed trailers, and the past couple days has recovered very slightly. Your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are this company is going bankrupt. This has a ton of debt. If you go and take a look at the market cap of two hundred million and long term debt of six hundred and fifty million, it shows you that this business is struggling. And the balance sheet's struggling. And the chart is struggling. So this business is very mismanaged. Its history of cash flow is kind of all over the place. And they benefited from the pandemic, but earnings are expected to slow from $1.24 last year to $0.36 this year and $0.38 next year. All with free cash flow in decline. So I think the market's telling you that that debt level is unsustainable. And whoever and whatever got them into that situation is driving this company into bankruptcy. And it looks like this happened in 2016 when they lost a bunch of money, 2016, 17 made a little bit of money in 18 and 2019, they lost a bunch of money. And so from 2016 till early 2018, their debt increased by $600 million. And it's been steady ever since, but now it's too expensive for them to keep. And so that's why it is likely a bankrupt story and you want to sell it. All right, we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call now at 888-99-CHART. 
Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. Now, my main focus point looks into the story behind this question. What are the pros and cons of donor-advised funds? And for this topic, I'll talk about charitable tax deductions with regards to these donor-advised funds and what type of investment flexibility investors have within these funds. Now, for investors who plan to make significant contributions over time, to some sort of charity and want to maximize their tax benefits, donor-advised funds can be a pretty attractive option. So what it allows people to do or, or donors to do is benefit from, benefit from immediate tax deduction when they contribute cash or other assets. And that's usually what it is. It's other assets. Now, you, gain, you, you keep control. I mean, you can invest it in which you're allowed to, depending on where, where that money's being held or where those assets are being held. But it's irrevocable. It's not like you can take back those contributions. So you retain basically an advisory role on how to invest those assets and how much the charities get over time. And then the investments can also grow tax-free over time. Now, the National Philanthropic Trust estimates that the assets in these funds total about $234 billion dollars as of the end of 2021. So no small amount. And you can set these up at major financial institutions, mainly Fidelity, Schwab, and Vanguard. Those are kind of the big ones. Now, the 2018 tax law made it more difficult to basically deduct your charitable donations because most people, their standard deduction doesn't, it covers them to a point where those itemized deductions don't actually work. So this allows you to bunch charitable donations by making a large single donation in one year and then pushing small amounts out over time. So that's why donor advised funds are becoming more and more attractive. And donors can contribute cash. Contributing cash can take a deduction of up to 60% of adjusted gross, of their adjusted gross income. Up to 60%. So that allows you to give that big boost uh, of tax savings in one year. But you can also, and a lot of people do, is, is contribute appreciated assets. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, even privately held business interest, restricted stocks, even cryptocurrencies. And when you donate those, you can take up to 30% of your adjusted gross income. So it's not quite as advantageous, but it gets you around potential large capital gains taxes on once again highly appreciated assets so if you hold if you've held a, a mutual fund for a long period of time or maybe a large cap tech stock for a long period of time and you have big gains you can actually donate those to charity through a donor advised fund and avoid that taking that gain now you can then once it is in one of those main brokerage firms, Fidelity, Schwab, or Vanguard, you can choose from preset options, and they vary depending on the broker, can range from conservative all the way to fully aggressive, all equities. 
And sometimes you can even choose from individual single asset class options. Now, what are the cons? Well, while Schwab and Fidelity, there's no minimum amount. Vanguard Charity does have a $25,000 initial contribution. And there's administrative costs. They all charge under $500,000, 0.6% annually. So 60 basis points annually. And then over 500000 it stair steps down. And then there's the fees of the particular funds that you might invest in. Okay. And this is different than a foundation, for example. If you're wealthier families, they often set up foundations, and that allows you to provide scholarships and uh, fellowships and direct grants to particular families or individuals that are facing hardships, for example, or even run your own charity program. So foundations are a lot more flexible. This is kind of more for the upper middle class, shall we say, as opposed to the uber wealthy. Now, from a fee perspective, Vanguard's the cheapest, but I think Schwab's kind of the best mix between the cost as well as the investment option flexibility. But they all kind of have their pros and cons. But this is a good way, I think, for a lot of people to donate to charity and do so in a tax-efficient way while staying invested. So uh, very interesting. And I do get, we do get a lot of clients that uh, inquire about this, and it's good that Schwab offers this because that's what we use. We use Schwab as our custodian. All right. Now, in the next Invest Talk, we'll look into the story set up by this question. What is an inverse ETF? And inverse ETFs can act like insurance for an investor's portfolio, but they're not recommended for everyone. That story Monday. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck. 
because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen, Justin. I am calling to get your opinion on Gilead. The symbol is G-I-L-D. I've been a holder of the stock. I bought it in the 70s per share, but then after that it went down. But now it's back up. So I just wanted to see uh, what the outlook is for the company and just what your thoughts are, whether to hold or do you think it's time to get out and get into something else? So I'll be listening to the answer on your podcast. Thanks again. Bye. All right, looking at Gilead Sciences. And this is certainly a complex one. A lot of pharma companies are, and Gilead is a a very interesting one. They have two stellar businesses, uh, HIV treatment business that does about $17 billion in sales annually. And then you also have a hepatitis C business as well. Now, the hepatitis C one has been kind of dwindling over time, mainly because it cures people. And so they don't have this kind of long-term capture as opposed to HIV patients. Obviously, you pretty much have to stay on, on, on those drugs for life. And so what they've been trying to do is take that strong cash flow from their hep C business and put it into biotechs that are mainly in the oncology space. So breast cancer, drugs, uh, et cetera. And that is risky. And they especially did that at a time where these companies were kind of expensive. And they built out a little bit up a little bit of debt, but their business is very strong, although it's in decline. And that's kind of my issue here. Cash from operations peaked out in 2015 around $21 billion. Now it's at 8.4 and on a new downtrend because it did perk up in late 2021 you saw a move from $7.7 billion pre-pandemic in cash from operations to $11.38. Now we're back down to $8.4. It's on a downtrend. And that's what worries me here. The chart, it's kind of neutral. You had a big move late last year. That was good. And it's been kind of consolidating that move. That's a positive. But this week, you had a big reversal on earnings. Revenues were flat, earnings up 21%. Maybe that's mainly that's because they were buying back shares. So I think there's better opportunities here. I think there's a lot of risk with that pipeline. And they're getting competition for their HIV drug as well. From who was it? Who launched it? It was another company that is launching a, a, a competitive drug, uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Yep, that's it. So I'm going to give this one an eh. I think you have better options out there. All right, let's keep things moving and play two in a row from the Vestock Voice Bank. It never closes. It's 888-99-CHART. Hi, this is Dan from Walnut Creek. I'm calling about Nuveen NAC. It's currently paying a 4.44% dividend. We're kind of um, in a holding pattern with regards to Fed rates. Fed cutting the rates or, or raising them. And I think the next moves, when they do make a move, most likely the rates will go down. And I believe the new bean tends to rise in price when the rates go down. So 
would this be a good time to purchase some Nuveen, even if rates stay the same for a while, just write it out and, and collect that 4.44% dividend. Thanks very much. Bye. All right. This is the Nuveen California Quality Muni Income Fund. And with along with a lot of the muni funds, this went down dramatically. Last year, it was down 25.5%. This year, so far, even after this bounce from 940 all the way to a little over $10 per share right now, it's still down 6.77% for the year. So, tough 20 months for the name, 22 months. And you're right. If the Fed is done raising rates and their next move is to cut and rates overall drop, this will rally <clears throat> and you will get a nice tax-free yield. So for a trade, actually give it a relative thumbs up. To buy and hold for the next five to 10 years? No, because I do think you're going to get a cyclical downtrend in rates in the midst of a secular uptrend in rates. Remember, there's, short, there's kind of short to medium term cyclical trends, and then there's the longer term trends, and the trends in rates are going up. So you can do this for a trade, but not for a long-term hold. All right. Now, the KPP Premium Newsletter was finished today and will be distributed to subscribers tomorrow. And we have a preview in the market conditions section. We explained that the financial market saw uh, gains and this week and with major indices up about 1% midway through the trading session today. The growth occurred amidst fluctuation, fluctuating treasury yields that saw the 10-year yield nearly open uh, levels, uh, near opening levels following a significant increase in the Federal Reserve's Jerome Powell's comments on, and a weaker treasury auction. So that was yesterday. It was all about Treasury auction, which I'm going to get to, as well as uh, Jerome Powell's comments that, yeah, they could raise rates again, although I don't really believe it. But despite economic uncertainties and recent interest rate cuts, the economy has shown resilience, supporting equity growth year-to-date. Analysts predict a softish economic landing with a slowdown in growth and gradual in inflation improvements. However, concerns about oil prices and market volatility persist. In the broader context of the American stock market, the Magnificent Seven, Magnificent, Magnificent Seven, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla have been stronger, although Tesla has started to roll over. Their success has significantly contributed to the S&P 500's index's outperformance compared to their international indices and small caps this year. The, this bifurcation in performance leads to divergent interpretations. Either the tech giants are overvalued and poised for a correction, or they will continue to outperform more traditional companies. All investors should reassess their portfolios as excessive exposure to a few companies concentrated in one sector can lead to adverse outcomes, as you saw last year. So there's a lot more in the market commentary section in the newsletter. Now, stock ideas, we highlight a global financial institution operating in about 130 countries that provides consumers and businesses Charge and credit card payment products. The company also operates a highly profitable merchant payment network. A weaker economy would be a major headwind on the company's spend-centric business model. So you may want to keep this on your watch list as you monitor for the economic climate. <clears throat> 
And we also look at the largest franchise bottler of wide moat Coca-Cola in unit volume terms. The company purchases beverages, beverage concentrates and syrups for, from Coca-Cola, which then it processes and packages for distribution on trade and off trade channels and mainly in the Latin American markets. So we name names in the newsletter and you can subscribe over at investtalk.com. Now, Let's go talk to Bill. He's in Northern California looking at Valero. Yeah. Hi, Justin. Well, I owned this earlier in the year, and when it ran up to like 45 or $6, I went above that, but I sold it at that price, thinking that that uh, was a little overpriced at the time, and I'm glad I did. And uh, But uh, I originally owned it around 100 and low hundreds, 105 or something. But it's coming back down again. I, I kind of like it as a dividend stock and long-term holding, but do you think this is a good value price right now in the low 120s? That's funny. You say you, say you, you bought it earlier in the year and sold it around the 140s, and we actually did the same thing for clients. So uh, it was a good trade yeah. for both of us, um, and it has rolled over. And the reason we sold it was because the crack spread was rolling, rolling over. And, you know, that's kind of the biggest issue for Valero and any of the refiners is you're kind of at the whims of the crack spread. <laughs> is it going up or is it going down? And this is a good example. You know, we talk about Exxon and, and Chevron and how those are very integrated energy businesses <clears throat> and they have refining businesses along with their EMP business. And I say <clears throat> most people should go look for the good EMP companies because those are going to benefit from higher energy prices, clearly. Whereas the refiners, that can ebb and flow, depending on supply-demand dynamics within the refining business, which can often diverge from energy prices. Right? There's a lot more to do with the broad economy, for example. And so <clears throat> Valero is more of that pure play refiner. And it's a good one, and no problem with it, but the technicals are now below the all the major moving averages. And I don't see major support until you get to around the 110 level, 110, 112, we're at 122 now. So I think there's still potential more downside. It is a good company, though. We like the company quality business, but it can be pretty volatile. And I would probably pass on it for now and keep your eye on it because uh, even at 110 uh, with the cracks spread declining that means earnings are expected to decline remember they made 29 dollars last year after making 281 the year before losing money in 2020 mainly because of the pandemic that's not really much to worry about but even pre-pandemic they kind of vacillated between five and seven dollars per share so you're going to get a reversion to the mean actually next year 14 dollars and 74 cents expected for next year's earnings so I would keep an eye on it, and I would probably pass on it for now. Very good. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch on manufacturing and the manufacturing renaissance in this country has now become fairly bipartisan. It's just a matter of how do you accomplish it. Accomplish it. Obviously, the current administration thinks – Chips and solar cell production, for example, are the main priorities. But in industrial 
in the industry world, there are a lot of other sectors, right? Food and beverage, for example, that's one. Uh, obviously, your traditional manufacturing of physical goods, there's clothing as well. So there's a lot of areas that can continue to get a renaissance, a renaissance but governments have to kind of create incentives around it, like they did with the chips market and clean energy markets. But the problem is, <clears throat> the problem is, is that American workers are becoming less efficient. And labor productivity in manufacturing fell by 0.2% at an annualized rate this year. So the recent jump in GDP was mainly driven by services, which is 80% of the economy. And productivity in manufacturing has been on a secular decline since 2011, so 12 years. Now, American manufacturing employment fell sharply in the early 2000s, <clears throat> obviously because of China exporting jobs to China. That's, that, that's true. But adding insult to injury, productivity declined as well. So it reduced the incentive for American firms to invest in America. They're getting better productivity gains, gains elsewhere. Now, during the 90s and early 2000s, manuf manufacturing productivity actually soared. Why? Deploying computers, electronics to make the jobs easier. And it's not just in one part of the manufacturing industry. It's in all parts. From high-tech to non-durables to cigarettes and clothes. 14 out of 19 manufacturing subsectors saw declines during the 2010s in productivity. And we may be a technological superpower, but we don't use a lot in manufacturing. In fact, we rank 7th out of 15 countries in the adoption of robots per worker. South Korea, the world's leader, uses over three times as many robots per worker. Now, industrial productivity has declined throughout the wealthy world, so it's not just us. But we're below average. Now, the big question is why? Now, first thing you can say is the smartest minds are going more towards Wall Street, software, and the internet. It's more lucrative. So talent has been diverted away from your traditional industries. So part of it is a brain drain. Now, how do we fix this? Obviously, education. Getting education around the manufacturing industry more accessible and make it okay for maybe people not to go to college and go into more of the trades. I know when I was in middle school, we had shop class. They don't have shop class anymore. Maybe that's a problem. And government can help as well. So in China, they have clustered 
their manufacturing hubs into one city like Shenzhen. And so creating these economic zones can be impactful as well that make it ideal for make it ideal for companies to set up shop in certain areas of the country. I think that'll be uh, important as well. All right. We're heading to a break. Dan from Walnut Creek, he's going to ask about oil stocks. So hold on. You'll be next on Invest Talk. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy and discipline. So Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are always ready to take your calls. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now on Fridays, I generally make time to fit in a quick rundown of key benchmarks. And let's do that real quick now. The two-year treasury yield at 5.05. Last week, it was 4.83, so up a bit there. 10-year, 4.63. Last week, 4.55. So that also rose for the week. Gold, priced at 19.35 an ounce. Down for the week, silver, same thing. 22.23 ounce oil, selling at $77.26, the lowest in uh, a handful of weeks. Last week was at $80.80. And the national average for gasoline, $3.39 per gallon. All right, let's go to Diane and Walnut Creek. Who wants to talk about oil stocks. Dan? Yeah, Justin, no, this is Dan. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. Hey, um, so I've got about $35,000 in my brokerage account, and um, I plan on keeping it there for about another year. Um, and I've got about five to 6000 of that in oil-related stocks. Um, I don't know if okay. it's spread out through about um, five five stocks. So low to mint um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, um, during this pullback, is it good, would it be a good time to add, or should I sell? I was thinking of selling, taking the profits, and putting them into like um, a short-term brokerage CDs. Well, obviously so that'd be a safer. Obviously, that'd be the safer play, uh, but I'd rather sell into strength. Uh, obviously, we've pulled back. Oil has reversed uh, kind of the entire. Hamas atrocity gains, shall we say, uh, from from what happened mid-August uh, in, in Israel. Um, you know, a lot of that is positioning. There was a build in, in oil stocks that was unexpected, so that kind of brought prices down. You know, longer term, uh, we're still in an uptrend, um, but we are at kind of the lower end of the uptrend range. So I will say that we are kind of at support. So this wouldn't be a time to be selling, but, you know, I think this is more you're feeling that volatility. You guys remember that. So when oil stocks rally, you have to remember that's when a more advantageous time to trim and rebalance into strength as opposed to weakness. So uh, it's harder to do, right, when you're feeling good and you're making gains and it's easier to kind of make yourself feel better when there's you know, a pullback in, in particular asset classes uh, like oil, which naturally is, is, is generally volatile. Um, so it just depends on <clears throat> how disciplined you are. If you can be disciplined to sell in a, a, a rally, then that's probably a better way to go. Okay, great. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, I want to get to yesterday's Treasury auction on the 30-year. The Treasury sold $24 billion in bonds, and the previous day, they were trading at about 4.65% yield. And after 
the auction trading at 4.8%. And it was one of the worst bond auctions they've had in years. And basically, primary dealers had to buy a quarter of the entire issuance, basically saying they couldn't find enough other entities to take these on. And so the dealers had to buy them and take them onto their balance sheet, which is frankly not what they want to do, right? They're more intermediaries. Now they're going to have to go and find times and, and ways to unload these positions, which puts more strain on private balance sheets. And this is reviving worries, which I'm saying we are hitting air pockets with lack of balance sheet capacity to handle the massive amount of debt that's being issued. And so I highlight this because this is the most important macroeconomic factor in the markets today is how governments, mainly the U.S. government, is going to finance themselves going forward. And what pressure does that put on interest rates, on banks, on the general public? And in some ways, in the short term, it actually is stimulative because these rates are, they're paying coupons going out to the public. It's a form of fiscal spending. But clearly we are in, I think, the first or second inning of the treasury bond market becoming majorly dysfunctional and it becomes a crisis, not just here in the country, in the country but globally because of because the fact that treasuries are a store of value for the rest of the world. So something to watch for. It's not going to unfold and, and, and spark a big kaboom tomorrow or next month or even next year. But it is something to watch to see how the powers that be, Treasury and the Fed, kind of manage through this. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. And it's official. We have now surpassed the 56.7 million download mark. We keep climbing all thanks to you. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Enjoy your weekend. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.